0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class.
1: Last time we raced through the second paragraph of the Shema, I'd I'd like to go back and just slow it down this time and give people, I didn't give anyone a chance, anyone but me a chance to talk last time, so I'd like to give other folks a chance to talk and... Reflect and react. So we're on page 100 in the Sim Shalom. Uh, 33
2: in the Sim Slim Shalom.
1: 33 in the Slim Slim Shalom. And just to get us back, to refresh us and get us back in the mood and in the mode of talking about, I'm going to again sort of translate quickly through the paragraph. And again, this paragraph is called In. Rabbinic literature, halachic literature, Kabbalat Ol Hamitzvot, Kabbalat Ol Mitzvot, accepting the yoke of the commandments, because it basically says, do commandment. If you fulfill the commandments, good things will happen. If you don't fulfill the commandments, bad things will happen. Pretty straightforward. As we said last week, this spoken to B'nai Israel as a group. There are places uh, I did notice last week where we do have singular. Um, giller suffixes like ve digancha and you will gather your grain, your wine, and your oil. That giller, and leave him techa ve vegetation in the field for your animals, and you will eat and be sated. But the commandment as a whole is given in the plural shamoatishmau and he shamrulachem and vesamtem. Okay, so um all these things are written in the plural. By the way, including, for example, in the first paragraph, v'hayu uh, bain which is interpreted to be the mitzvah of the tefillin, they should be for frontlets between thine eyes, in the siddur that I grew up with, the silverman. Um, but this is right, um, Bain right? And we have, in the first paragraph, Vishinantam you should teach them to your children. But we have in this paragraph, vili maditem otam, which is you, plural people, should teach them to your children. Right? So all of the verbs, as far as I can tell, uh, when we go through it, I'm sure someone will find an exception. But all the verbs in the second paragraph are in the plural. So we are not speaking to the individual Israelite. Moshe is speaking to Bnei Israel as a whole. Or the command is not to the individual Jew, but to the Jewish people as a whole. So, to the Jewish people as a whole, Moshe says, basically, thought number one, if you listen to all the mitzvot which I command you this day to be devoted to Hashem, your God, and serve God with all your lave and all your nephesh. That's sentence one. Sentence two, then I will give you the correct rain, first and last rain, as Vera taught us last week, in its season, so that you will gather your agricultural crops, meaning there will be food. Third, third sentence, and there will be vegetation in your fields for your animals, and then you will eat and be sated. Um, fourth sentence. We have the flip side of the above. watch out, lest you be, lest your heart, your mind be seduced, and visartem, you, and you stray, vavadetem elohim achirim, all plural, and you worship other gods, v'ishtachavitem and bow down to them. Again, this is in the context of Sefer Dvarim, where Moshe is going on and on about the importance of being loyal to Hashem alone and be careful when you get to the land not to be seduced and worship any of the gods that the people of land worship. So sentence, that was sentence one, two, three. So sentence four is watch out, don't worship other gods, don't be seduced by other gods. Parallel of sentence two, because then the outcome will be V'chara af Hashem God will be angry with you, plural, use, right? God will be angry with you and no. shut up the heavens so that there will not be rain and consequence. V'hadama mm-hmm. lo the earth will not give its yield. So the punishment isn't, it, uh, sorry, the direct punishment isn't that the earth won't give its yield. The direct punishment is no rain. Rain, right? the result of which will be the earth will not give its yield. The result of which will be, you will, um, what's the verb here? Disappear. Okay, that's a good enough translation. You will quickly disappear from the land um, which Hashem gives you. The good land, right? So it's potentially good land when there's rain, gave you a good land, but you blew it because you disobeyed, so there is no rain. Vered has a question.
2: No question, just a very slight comment. Uh, yeah. Looking at the language, there's uh, two verbs that they sound the same. They mean yeah. the It's va'avadetem.
1: Ooh, good. So, it's a pun. It's a pun. It's a pun. It's- it's- Sort vavadetem, of a pun. Play on, right? play on words. Elohim if you, thank you, very if you worship other gods, then right. you will speedily disappear. Everyone see that? Avadatem with an ayin, Avadatem with an olive. By the way, it's a pun to us and in the Midrash. Um, I'm usually convinced it was never originally a pun because I think originally in biblical times, the Aleph and the Ayin were pronounced so differently that people would not have seen that as a play on words. Um, Just so you know, by the time of the Midrash, actually already in the Mishnah, meaning in the early centuries of the Common Era, by then there are already Midrashic plays on Aleph and Ayin. Um, if you look, for example, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as far as I know, scribes would never, ever, ever mix up an Aleph, Ayin, right? Aleph, and I'm not raised Mizrahi enough to be able to say it correctly. So Ayin, oh. Ayin, the guttural Ayin, which Arab still distinguishes from Aleph. Arabic still distinguishes from Aleph. But in Ashkenazi Hebrew, we've lost that distinction. So in the Dead these scrolls, like there's never, as far as I know, a make for Aleph or ayin by Mishnaic times, and there's actually a, a famous Gemara passage where they argue about in in tractate Avodah Zarah worship, where they argue about does the Mishnah is the Mishnah's word with an Aleph or an ayin. I'm not an expert on this, but I remember reading a sentence somewhere once that it was in. Galilean Hebrew of the early centuries of the common era, Mishnah, and Talmudic times, it's in Galilean Hebrew where they started to, they had already lost the distinguish, betr, distinction between Aleph and ayin, And I. And do start seeing Midrashim about is the word with an Aleph or is the word with an ayin. In biblical times, I think there would never be a debate or confusion about if it was Aleph or ayin. So that means by Galilean Hebrew in the first centuries of the Common Era, they were, people were already pronouncing them similarly, the way we Ashkenazim do. Again, a Yemenite or a Moroccan today would never mistake one word for the other. It's va'al versus va'al vadetem, and they would say, no, those two words sound nothing like each other whatsoever. But thank you, Varian. So that's a good midrash. Which could not have been a Midrash in two hundred BCE, but which could have been a Midrash in the year three hundred of the Common Era, five hundred years
3: later. Okay. <laughs>
1: okay. Um, um, Ilana?
3: Yeah, I I think there's probably some name in literary criticism for the mistake I'm about to make. Um so we're studying in Hebrew, we're talking about the difference between two very similarly pronounced <clears throat> letters and words. the them, yeah. right. But the meaning of these two words, and I'm going to rely on the English here for the sake of simplicity, so you have stray and disappear, right and
1: yeah, although not stray, sorry, not stray it 's va'avatem yeah. and you will worship, and then va va tem with an aleph you will disappear or be destroyed
3: or get lost ah, yeah. okay, so cancel that idea
1: okay, all right, anyway, so so sentence whatever we 're up to, four or five, the consequence is if you don 't listen. Um, God will be angry, shut up the heavens, and the result will be, uh, earth will not give its produce and you will disappear immediately. Avadatem, it's a very hard word to translate in this conjugation in the kal. It really means sort of like to be destroyed, but not in the passive sense. If there were an English word for be destroyed, but without it being expressed passively. It's really an active word. You will disappear.
2: Disappear is good.
1: Evap- evaporate, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So therefore, so Hashem said, if A, then A prime. If B, then B prime. So therefore, temetrai ela. There, hold on a second, Marshall. So therefore, you ought to put these words very. Put them on your heart and on your soul, meaning very close to you. Put them in your mind and in your being and you shall bind them as a sign on your arms. They shall be frontlets between your eyes, either the mitzvah of chillin or just a a um, metaphor of closeness or a metaphor of this should imbue your vision, your your thinking, and your action. You should... Uh, you should Teach your children, and you should speak of them. Uh, Again, we have these same merisms, right? Which means when we express the whole gamut of something by expressing two extremes that we had in the first paragraph. The Shema, when you're dwelling at home and walking on the way, meaning private life and public life you go to bed and when you wake up, meaning your whole entire day, <speaking in Hebrew> your homes and your public squares. And now the point is driven home. And now this last sentence makes perfect sense, right? Why is this last sentence? Why is something like the last sentence, not in the first paragraph of the Shema, but it is in the second paragraph of the Shema, because the first paragraph of the Shema just said, love God and do these things. Second paragraph says, if you follow God, there will be rain and you'll be sated. If you don't follow God, then the rain will disappear. Okay? And you will, you will disappear. The rain will be held back and you'll disappear. Therefore, uh, take these words to heart. Teach them to your children. They should imbue every aspect of your life every time of day so that right? Now it comes back to the land. So that your years and the years of your children will be long on the land which Hashem has sworn to you as long as the heavens are over the earth, which is a way of saying forever and ever. ever. Okay. So, um, flow of ideas is if you listen to the mitzvot, then there will be rain, which will lead to vegetation and life. If you don't listen to the mitzvot, vote, God will hold back the rain, which will lead to dissipation. And, death. um, so this good advice so you'd better really think about mitzvot all the time and make them very important in your lives. Dwell on them all the time so that you don't, presumably you don't forget them or get seduced away, okay? And dwell them in all these ways we talk about both at the end of the first paragraph of the Shema and the end of the second paragraph of the Shema, although with some differences in wording, so that you will be able to live long on the land which Hashem gives you, okay? So that's the... F- flow of ideas. Um, I just want to make a little pointer. This is just a little pointer for nerds. You'll notice under the word "bomb" is the et nachta for toe reading, which is the main comma or semicolon in the middle of the sentence, which means you should pause there, which means according to the ba'alei hamasorah, the people who put in the trope, to help people, they thought you should say the sentence and you should teach them to your children to speak of them,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: semicolon, when you walk, when you lie down at home and when you rise up at night and when uh, when when you're sitting at home, when you're walking on the way, when you lie down, when you get up. So that leaves the second half of the sentence kind of without a verb. What am I supposed to do? when I'm down and when I'm rising up. Everyone see the problem? You should teach your children to speak of them. When you lie down, what are you supposed to do when you lie down? Are you supposed to teach your children when you lie down and you rise up? So notice that our translator in English says, teach them to your children, period. Repeat them at home and away. So our translator is ignoring the and our translator is understanding the sentence to mean, v'limat otam mm-hmm. pause, "Lidaber bam mm-hmm. teach your children, and new, new thought, speak of them when you are dwelling at home and are walking on the way and when you lie down and rise up. Everyone see that distinction? Mm-hmm. So our translator takes mm-hmm and decides it really needs to govern the second half of the sentence. It's the verb which opens the second half of the sentence, rather than closing the first part of the sentence, which means our translator thinks there should be an et under b'nei chem. There's a whole, uh, some of the medieval commentators will talk about how the trope, which is the punctuation of a verse in the Torah, depending on where the trope is, sometimes gives can give different meanings to a verse in the Torah where you pause gives meaning to a sentence. just like in English, like in the sentence, there's the old trick when you write it on the board, you you write on the board, time flies, you can't, they fly too fast. And you say to people how to read that. And people say, uh, Time flies, you can't, right? And the correct punctuation is time flies, you can't. They fly too fast, right? So time flies gets you to think about it's about time, right? Whereas time flies is really could you time a fly, you know, like with a timer? It's hard to do it without a board, right? Time flies, you can't. They fly too fast. So punctuation determines the meaning of a sentence sometime. So where you put the major comma or semicolon in your sentence will affect the meaning of the sentence. So I just want to point out that our translator isn't happy with that nachta, the major pause in the sentence, under Vidibar bam. Our translator thinks vidibarta bam is the verb which governs the second half of the sentence, um, which is a good thought because otherwise it's hard to interpret the, se- the second Half of the sentence. Otherwise, the sentence reads, and you should teach them to your children to speak of them, meaning, I should teach my children that they should talk about Torah all the time. And then that would suggest, I should teach my children at home and on the way and when I lie down and when I rise up. It kind of makes v'lim be the verb which governs the second half of this also. Everyone see that? V'lim otam eb nechem le You should teach your children. Uh, them to speak of them meaning I should teach my children to speak of Torah which is a lovely thought that might mean I should teach all the time as opposed to our translator who says you should teach your children and it's as if is vidibarta but it's not vidibarta But our translator wants it to be vidibarta Enough on that point. Okay, Marshall, you had a hand up. You had a thought you want to share?
4: Yeah, just two questions, Avi.
0: Why is it in the first paragraph we have Vishinantam? and in the second paragraph we have does... Oh, I don't know.
1: I am certain. So, Marshall is asking. First paragraph, it says, the, in the, between the first paragraph and the second paragraph, there are different words used for teach. In the first paragraph, we have vishinantam, lishanen, which means to repeat. Literally, it means to repeat. Um, in the ancient world, where everything was oral, you learned by repeating. Reciting was repeating. The word mishnah literally means like the Mishnah literally means repeated recitation. It's a, it's a teaching. It's a paragraph. It's a document, but the core word means teaching and it comes. And the Shoresh, the root means to repeat Lishanot literally means to do a second time, right? So you learn something or you taught something by reciting it repeatedly since literature and wisdom was all oral. So Marshall is asking, how come the word in the first paragraph for teaching is vishinantam and the word in the second paragraph for, te- for teaching limaditam? I certainly don't know the answer off the top of my head. I wonder, I'm, sure I wonder, there, I'm sure there are midrashim about yeah, that, and yeah. I can look it up. But Marshall okay. thinks uh, the reason is what?
4: Well, I think Marshall the first, first word. I think the first word. I thought that the shorosh was shin nun nun. The shanay, to, sharp, to sharpen, and not to eat.
1: Yes. So it's shana and shanan, vered? Shin-nun-nun
2: is the showish. And and the difference, briefly, in understanding, is if you say the Shinantem means you know it already, but repeat it. Once is not enough. Just repeat it. Do it again and again and again. And limadetem is you teach... From the beginning, you have to teach it since they didn't know whoever is the audience. So there is a difference in the meaning of those two verbs.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay, but, wow. which still doesn't answer the question of why yeah. why one paragraph in Devarim Moshe uses one verb for teaching, and in this other one, he does another verb for teaching. Does anyone else want to tell us their midrash? Anyone want to make up their midrash you want to share? I
0: have one more midrash. On, I actually
1: two. Oh, yeah. Marshall. Okay, Just Marshall has more. midrash on it.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, it's sort of going back to your point here. Um, no, wait.
1: No, no, no. Marshall, are you answering my question? Are you on Vishinantam Vilimatitam?
3: Oh, no, not on that. I different, stay, different. No, I want to
1: stay on that. Okay. Meyer, you raised a good question, so let's flesh out answers okay. before we go to another question. Meyer. I think,
4: I think it's intentional in the sense of how you're going to teach one person versus how you're going to teach a group of people. So you can actually have one person do repetition, but you can't have a group of people necessarily do repetition. So I think the idea is it's teaching us not just to teach them, but how to teach them. So it's a methodology that would be used in teaching the individual. And the amount of time is just more broadly speaking about, you know, education.
1: Good. When I taught, when I taught my daughters for their bat mitzvah, I drilled them repeatedly, which they did not appreciate and which they still remind me of this day. So you can drill (laughs) an individual repeatedly, but you can't do that so well with a group. Ilana.
3: Yeah, um, first of all, I sort of disagree with with the distinction that Meyer just made. I mean, just from this.
1: Well, sorry, what you mean, I think what you mean is you have an alternative midrashic understanding.
3: (laughs) Well, I'm just going to, Dispute for a second the distinction between group and individual. Um, okay. Surely, surely it is true historically and even now that groups of you know little Jewish children repeat, 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 repeat. Do they actually learn from the beginning? That's a question. The drash that I, the midrash, is more of a question mark, which is, wouldn't this distinction have something to do with what precedes the second? formulation mad the yeah. choice of verb huh? because it because it um because it follows on that huge series mm-hmm. of um you know if then statements of you know the consequences yeah. of straying so maybe yeah. maybe um the, the, the elucidation <clears throat> of that string of consequences maybe that is itself the teaching
1: okay you should you should, rather than, um, you should drill them. I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Rather than you should drill them, you need teach them. You need to explain to them, that might be right, a better which, word, which in that, that in what, if A, then A prime, and if yeah. B, then B prime.
3: Which, okay. yeah, and which I'm, you know, inferring by the fact that the use of limatem is preceded by that whole series of um, explanations, rationalizations, whatever you want to call it.
1: Uh-huh. So in other words, vishinantam might refer to these words, right? These words, you can drill them on over and over again. V- v- vilimatetamotam is about this concept of national reward and punishment and consequences for societal behavior.
3: Or or even fair enough. Yes, and um, the first paragraph is in a way it's a simpler statement of the um, of the kind of 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 faith and love for for God that we should have, and the drilling, the repetition, without the prior teaching, is um, what we call in English doing something on faith without explanation.
1: Good. Okay, so it's a different kind of education because it's a different kind of learning. Yeah, and in fact,
3: it's it's not even, I mean, the question might be whether it's learning, whether maybe the first paragraph is just simply saying, repeat these things, drill these things, and leaving aside even the question of whether it's learned.
1: Yeah. I'd actually like to make it broader rather than drilling or repeat these things, but yeah, I know. Um, imbue your ch- imbue your children with these meets vote or words by doing them over and over again. It's about right. habit. Let's call it habit rather than, rather to not make it sound like it's rote repetition, right? Habit. Instill these habits in your children, have them know it all by heart and do it all by heart. It's different than educate people to understand that, their consequences to our national behavior, mm-hmm. which is something more theoretical, conceptual, philosophical than just raise someone so that they will be imbued with certain habits. I know the Shema by heart because you recited it with them in bed every night.
3: And maybe it's a higher order of. Um, okay. Good.
1: Yeah. Okay, good. Good. Other thoughts? on this second paragraph. We can leave Vishinantam Tamzunni Matatem, and I'll uh, look up when I get a chance to see if there are other, what the traditional commentators make of this distinction. Larry Herman.
0: I, I think, well, Marshall had another point too. I don't want to get in line before him.
1: That's okay. No, that's okay. He made one point. We'll let you make a point, then we'll go back to Marshall.
0: So I had three, so I'll pick only one. And the, yeah. the, and thank you. And, the one that I'll pick is, <clears throat> it's a dangerous thing to give people a, um, uh, an if-then um, statement like this, because yep. once you do, and it, it, you know this, every, we all know this from either being a child or raising children, if, if you do this, this will happen, and of course, when they do it and it doesn't happen, we've been proven wrong. So I'm wondering in the theological sense um, since we know that at times when people are observant as a community the rains don't fall and conversely at times when people are not observant which is most of the time as a community the rains do fall, what's the import of this very important second paragraph of the Shema? We know that it's not true and everybody well, knows that it's not true. Why did Moses... By,
1: by which, yeah. Yeah. Why,
0: why did Moses waste by, ammunition in this way?
1: Right. So I will reframe your question as everyone knows that sometimes it's not true and it doesn't turn out this way. So because of that question, um, Chazal, our sages, then expanded all sorts of pockets and side highway b- byways. I don't know what the right phrase is um, of their understanding of reward and punishment. So you are, so uh, what I might say is the Torah here in Devarim chapter 11 expresses a group doctrine of reward and punishment in a way that we might find very simple perhaps simplistic later generations looked at the world around them and they said, this seems to not always be true. And so the sages came up with all sorts of sub explanations like, um, you see uh, bad people prosper. Uh, don't worry, just wait. God is giving them whatever reward they deserve now but their punishment will be reserved for later. Or you see, let's, let's leave it on the corporate level, on the group level, Bene Israel throughout the Middle Ages, suffering at the hands of the Gentiles, right? Which see to, hey we, hey, we kept the mitzvot, right? What about us? So what's the, Larry, you know, what's the traditional answer that's given to that in rabbinic theology? Larry?
0: The world to come.
1: Right. Don't worry. We'll get our reward. Right. And and the Gemara is very explicit about this. Um, the Gentiles, whatever reward they deserve for whatever good they do, they're getting it now. They're going to get their punishment later. OK. Um, whereas we are getting all our punishment now. Don't worry. We'll have. Abundant reward later. So my point is that later generations have looked at this, raised this question, and have all sorts of ways of, um, I don't want to say altering, but maybe expanding this straightforward idea of reward and punishment to have it account for the realities of the world that they saw around them. And again, I shared with you my understanding last week, which is, I think this means in general, societies that live up to their highest aspirations will prosper, and societies that tray their highest aspirations are more likely to wither. But even there, when I said more likely, that means that's my byway, that's my fudge, right? More likely to prosper versus more likely, because you could have a society that lives up to its highest expectations and goals and aspirations, and then a volcano erupts on them and wipes out the entire society, and then you'd say, well, what about that? How did that fit with your interpretation of the Hayyim Shamoah, Havidi? Right? And I wouldn't have a good answer for that one. Meyer?
4: Um, I want to expand on something else that you said uh, last week related to this, uh, and that is the idea that... Um, the grain that the bread that was uh, grown in Egypt came easily in the sense that the floods were there, the flood were there. There wasn't right. much work required. Right. Um, yep. I'm going to do a plug for a book called 6,000 Years of Bread," which actually you used- know what?
1: I thank you. I've actually seen that book and read it, not cover yeah. to
4: cover. I've read it cover to cover. It's written by a, a German Jew who escaped, uh, you know, uh, before. Um, the rise of, you know, during the rise of Hitler, but then made it to the United States. It was written originally in German. And it really goes through kind of the advance of civilization, as in and tr- tracing it from the origins of bread um, and it's arguing that the origins of bread are in Egypt because of its unique place. But here you have the children of Israel, obviously, as you said it uh, last week, you know, about to enter into a new land, thinking, well, it's going to be like Egypt, right? We'll just go ahead and raise our fields. will be easy. But it's like, no, it's not going to be so easy. And you, if you guys don't have an organized approach towards planting and sowing and reaping, et cetera, you know, it's not even just about rain. It's about, it's about maximizing the value of the rain. So even if it comes, if you can't be ready for it and prepare for it, put your own effort into it and work as a, as a group and as a unit to develop that you won't have food to eat and you will not be able to grow your civilization. So I think, um, I, you know, to me, I, I love that because it takes it further out from just the theological and into the practical, which is why I also believe we're continually binding our our uh, our minds, but also our arms. We can't be one without the other.
1: Great, thank you. So Myra is saying, or I'm going to read, re- I'm going to rephrase it. This paragraph, in terms of warning B'nai Israel how things are going to be, tells that not only. What they need to do, so that God will provide uh, some basis for subsistence, but it hint, it, it then puts a cha- i'm going to say puts a challenge before them, lets them know what the challenge is going to be about how they're going to have to live and structure themselves in order to make the best of that subsistence that God is going to provide. Is that a fair statement, Meyer? Did I get it? Did I That's understand fine. what you said?
4: yeah. Okay. But I recommend the book. Um, by the way. It's amazing.
1: Good, thank you. I will close with a smile, and then we'll wrap up, and we'll continue next week. Can um, I just ask, I Abby? Mean, I, I wrote a. I wrote a, I,
0: Can I just ask? Did you guys also have you read Jared Diamond's "Gun, Steel, and Germs"? Because I'm wondering if there's a relationship there.
1: That tells it all: gun, steel, germs, and bread. So, gun, um,
0: gun steel, and germs is about the evolution of civilizations in terms of how they, how different um, geographic areas were able to advance. So it seems to me there's a relationship between the two.
1: Yes, and Myers', looking, Myers book, I think, looks at it from a an earlier and very, very basic um, standpoint, which is how people learn to have enough food, uh, which really boils down to how people learn to have enough food to move beyond the subsistence hunter-gatherers. So... That's a good note to end on, heading into Sukkot, the holiday when we celebrate the joy of the bounty, uh, which will be a little more challenging uh, this year to have the celebration and the joy. Um, so, Gmar Hatimah we say that for another couple of weeks until Hoshan Araba next Friday. Will we meet next Tuesday? I'm always confused about. Uh, I think we won't. There's Hallel and Musaf. And we'll right. probably be out of time. Right. We'll, yeah, we'll wing it. We'll see what time it is next Tuesday. How about that? Okay. Okay. So chag sameach to <inaudible> all. Marhatimatovata <inaudible> all. And there I think there are more thoughts linger about this paragraph. We'll back to them next time we meet, because I don't wanna I don't wanna uh, it's not a I don't wanna filibuster here to shut off debate. Okay.
0: I have, an Thank you, unrelated, you I have an unrelated question about a word that came up in the davening yesterday. Okay. I think the word was kavosh or kavosh, and I think it was translated as conquer. Yeah. All right. And it, yeah. as soon as I read that, as soon as I saw it, you know, and it's with a vet, not a vav. As soon as I saw it, I thought of putting the kabosh on something. Do you think that that yeah, we, oh, comes I from... Oh, I love that. Know. I
1: love those English-Hebrew things. Uh, <laughs> right. I, yeah, just, I have no idea what kibosh comes from, right? It's kvoshka ascha. We say to Hashem, we want you to subdue your anger, right? You're angry. The conks, we're asking God to conquer God's own anger at us. Kvoshka ascha. I think is the phrase probably. Right. So yes, we could translate it in God. Put the kibosh on your anger.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm wondering if that's where the word came from.